Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. If you are visiting with us, you picked a perfect Sunday to be here. We're on the seventh commandment, probably your favorite. I promise in a couple of weeks we're going to get on Do Not Lie. It'll be a much uh, happier subject. I'm lying. (laughs) So here's the starting question, which is one that Paul gets at as he's explaining this commandment. How do we decide what's beneficial? How do we as people decide what's best? How do we determine how we are meant to live our lives? Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians to a church in a very Greek and modern city of Corinth. And they had a phrase that was common in Corinth that basically said this. It said, what's said in the NIV, which is a better translation, I have the right to do anything. Paul is talking to them and says, you think you have the right to do anything. Well, that's sort of true. It's lawful to do whatever you want. But this was a phrase that was common in the thinking of modern-day Corinth in the first century. And it carried on to their view of sexuality. They were a very sexually liberal culture. If you were especially a well-to-do man, it was expected that you would have extramarital relationships. And even the temple in Corinth was known for its temple prostitutes, which he has to write about. The temple of Aphrodite was supposed to have had up to a thousand prostitutes at one time. Church attendance for the men was very good back then because it was a part of your religiousness. It was how you worshiped. In other words, to be a normal person, to be a worshiper of the gods, was to engage outside of marriage and sexuality. The question that I started with is one I want to go back to. Why or how do we decide what's best, what's beneficial, what's right and good? In the modern West, and we've talked about that here a lot, what are some things that we value? We value individuality and freedom and personal liberty, and we're looking for happiness and self-fulfillment. 
You combine those two things, and if you were to ask most people in our culture, how do you decide what's beneficial and what's best, they would say, if they were really being thoughtful about it, something along the lines of, well, I take into account science and cultural norms, what's normative in our culture. But mostly, if you're gonna be honest, it's feelings and desires in our culture. The final authority today for what's good, best, beneficial, is me. What I like, what I want, and, and what works, most of us are pragmatic, is something I must need. There must be some reason why I want it, and if it works, why shouldn't I? And this plays out in how we approach things like sex. Dale Keene, a professor, summarized our view of sexuality today with these phrases. You are free to do whatever you want so long as it harms no one. In other words, it's consensual. As long as it's not forced or harming somebody else. Free to do whatever you want. And when it comes to sexuality, you cannot criticize or curtail what I want. That is hateful and inhuman. And of course, it's not only with our sexuality, it's with all of our choices in life. What we do with our money, our career, our kids, our vacation, our retirement, every relationship, every choice. But Paul asks the question, is it beneficial? Will it master us? He says in verse 12 in response, he says, yeah, sure, you have the right to do anything, but is it beneficial? And will it master you? Will it enslave you? In other words, he's asking, is the choice you're making, people in Corinth, is it really best? And how would you even know? And then he proceeds to teach and explain a Christian and biblical view of sexuality. He very explicitly says in verse 18 and 20, flee sexual immorality, glorify God with your body. That's what he's, he's getting at. And that's built off of the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, sex outside of marriage, or the more explicit and challenging view of Jesus. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, if you even look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. The biblical and Christian worldview held in that day and age that everything from sex outside of marriage to a looking with desire and intent was already adultery in the heart. When Christianity tries to answer the question, what's best, what's beneficial, what's good and right and true, it goes to the answer of what God says. You want to understand how to live your life, to enjoy life to the full? Then you need to know God and his purposes for us in our lives, and that includes our sexuality. In other words, to put it pretty simply, sex is meant to find its purpose and intent in God's design. And sexuality and how it is meant to be played out is revealed in creation and by the creator. It's something we are meant to understand and come under, not something we need to discover on our own. 
So let's, um, let's look at what God intended and designed. Let's go back to his design in the creation, which we read in Genesis. Here, here's the question, why did God create in the first place, right? Why did God create? It's a question that people ask, a little kid will ask, why did God create in the first place? He was bored, he was lonely, his son kept nagging him, so he created some friends for the son to mess with. You know, we come up with all sorts of ideas. Why did he create in the first place? Most theologians will explain it this way from a Christian perspective. God exists in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternal union. From before time began, there was and there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternal loving union. And their loving union is one being, one God. And that eternal loving union, almost in a centrifugal sort of way, spins forth creation in order to spread the love and joy, the union that Father, Son, and Spirit are enjoying. John Paul II explained this in his Theology of the Body, but much more simply, Christopher West in his Theology of the Body for Beginners put it this way, Love, by its nature, desires to expand its own communion. God certainly didn't need anyone else. The love of the Trinity is perfect and complete in itself. Yet, out of sheer goodness and generosity, God wanted to create a great multitude to share in his own eternal exchange of love. That's why God creates. So hold that in mind as we then look at Genesis 1, 27 and 28, which is the creation of humanity and the creation mandate. We read this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. A couple of things that are going on here. Male and female, we see this in verse 27. That diversity reflects the Trinity in whose image we are made. In other words, there is something imaging God, something spiritual and holy in our given gender. Gender matters because it's a way of reflecting the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit are three persons, three distinct persons, one being, one God. I am male, some of you are female, and we reflect God differently. There's something spiritual and holy in that. And also, according to the creation mandate, there's a calling to male and female that makes sexual difference necessary for fulfilling creation mandate, right? Sex is a giving of yourself to your spouse that actually is in the course of time and God willing produces new creation. We actually carry on the new creation. We, God creates and we go along co-creating. It's called procreation. Christopher West, again back to him, put it this way, 
God created us male and female so that we could image his love, reflect him in the way he loved, a communion of persons not only between the sexes, but also with a third who proceeds from them both. It's not saying that if you don't have kids or you can't have kids that you fall short, but there's something inherent reflecting God and carrying on that creation mandate in the male-female and the birth of child. Something profound, fulfilling God's call to reflect him and to carry on his role of creation and new creation. There's more. In Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 2, we get the climax of creation, if you would. The man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know, if you read through Genesis 1 and 2, it is a profound narrative. In the beginning, God, and then God speaks, and the light, and the creation, and then eventually humanity is birthed. From Genesis 1, God's perspective, to Genesis 2, humanity's perspective, all that you get is God doing, God creating, and God alone is speaking. This is the first time man or humanity speaks. And the very first thing out of the man's mouth, the climactic declaration of creation, is a song. It's a poem. It's a song. It's a declaration. He's shouting, at last, one of my own. At last, I am not alone. At last, one like me. Here she is. Adam was alone and needed Eve, just as you and I need each other. We need each other relationally, and we need each other male and female. We need that difference, and we need the relational connection that we are called to, whether in sexuality or just in relationship of humanity. It is not good for us to be alone. At last, one like me, but different. And then the summary and and the first marriage declaration is there in verse 24. For this reason, the man shall leave and hold fast or cleave and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What's being described in Hebrew terms and Hebraic terms is a covenant ceremony. A covenant was an ancient way before God of making a commitment forever. It was bringing of two people or two parties together in one new entity, one new person, with promises before God and before others, saying, now we are something different, a covenant. And that idea of hold fast and become one, it has with it the idea of a covenant and promises, but it actually also has with it uh, sexual connotations. Hold fast and cling, become one flesh. In a very literal sort of way, the writer says, yeah, you get it. I'm talking about sex here. You're connected. You're now one. And the indication 
the indication is that there's actually a spiritual side to sexual union. And we might say, wow, of course. Or, huh? There's a spiritual side to sex. Yes. Crazy as it sounds, Paul is actually suggesting that in 1 Corinthians. Listen to how he challenges the Corinthians not to participate in prostitution. He does it on the basis of their spirituality and their union with God. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? When you come to faith in Christ, you are united with Christ. You have union with God through Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And later on he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you? If you are in Christ through faith, you are united with Christ. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Paul is saying sex with a prostitute, even if it's just a one-off act with somebody you have no connection with, is a spiritual act with profound implications. Craig Keener, one commentator, suggested that Paul was trying to say that so powerful was the sexual union that it established a relationship even if the parties involved sought to avoid emotional intimacy or the commitment the sexual union was meant to consummate. Even casual hookup sex is something far more powerful than we may, not, we may realize, certainly than our culture would suggest. C.S. Lewis gives a little more of a, a scary warning as he's um, writing in the screw tape letters. The screw tape letters are one demon, a senior demon, writing to another demon on how to tempt a man. The senior demon tells his junior demon, he says, try to make the man you are tempting forget about the truth and focus instead on his sexual desire and pleasure. But then he warns, he's, he explains the real deal to the junior devil when he says, the truth is, that whenever a man lies with a woman there, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relation is set up between them, which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. And now I'm going to have to say C.S. Lewis is speculating, and it's not clear that that's exactly what takes place, but the warning is meant to carry with it that there is a spiritual, a holy, potentially even an eternal weightiness to sex, casual or not. In sex, God sees you as one. You may not see yourself as one with this person. God sees you as one. The two become one flesh. But the unique thing about the story here is that this one flesh is naked and unashamed. The conclusion of the entire creation is that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And you've heard us talk about that here if you've been here more than once. They were not just naked physically, although they were. 
They were naked emotionally, psychologically, socially, intellectually, spiritually, in every way possible. The idea behind naked and unafraid is that I am fully known. I am trusted and I trust you. I have nothing to hide and nothing to fear before you. We are one. But think about how different that is than the general way we think about sex today. The casual sex viewpoint is, I want you physically, but I'm not really sure I want you emotionally. I certainly don't want you economically, and I'm not sure I believe in the spiritual side. In other words, I want your body, I don't want you. Sex can even become a commodity as a result. Okay, okay, I'll give you emotional intimacy if you give me physical intimacy. And the other person says, all right, I'll give you physical intimacy if you give me emotional intimacy. It's a contract. A vendor and a client. And think about the difference between a contract relationship and a covenant relationship. In a contract relationship, you're a consumer. You have a vendor who supplies something for you. But you make it very clear, even though there's a contract, that you're constantly trying to figure out what you're getting in the deal. And you, you let the vendor know you're always looking for better, seeing if you can get more for less. In relationships without the long-term commitment of covenantal promise, it is a contractual consumer relationship. Yes, we're in relationship, but is there somebody else who could really do this better? And you're always having to sell yourself, always marketing. But in a covenant relationship of lifetime commitment and uniqueness, you're safe to be yourself. You can be naked in every possible way without fear. You don't have to market yourself anymore. In other words, the way that God has designed us is that sex is not meant for my personal happiness first, or probably even second. But it's meant to be found in a fully committed, fully naked, if you will, giving and creating relationship. It's for covenant. Because it is for fulfilling God's intent reflecting God and glorifying God. And that's why, you know, this is, this is hard to hear, but I'm going to just lay it out there very clearly. Christianity has always held this. This is true of biblical Christianity. But this is hard to hear in our culture today. It's hard for many of us in this room to hear. Sex is meant to be one man and one woman in a lifelong, exclusive covenant of marriage. That's it. I've, I've read all the stuff. You, you actually can't get around that. Everything else breaks the seventh command and is living apart from God's design and purpose. And, and let it be known, it's not just with our sexuality, but 
what's best, what's, what benefits us is always God's design and purpose, always. But this whole idea of sex in this way is actually very, very hard. It's very hard, I know, for many of us. For some, probably in this room, certainly outside of this room, this description sounds very painful, even impossible to live out. Let's hit on something that is obviously behind our our thoughts here. This call to this type of sexuality is a uniquely painful challenge for a same-sex attracted person. If you are a 30-year-old who is same-sex attracted, think about the crisis of hearing this message. Your identity, your self-understanding, all your longings and hopes are being told they have to be thrown out. Sounds like a death sentence. And what you're saying is, I have to live alone the rest of my life. I never get to experience love. And quite frankly, the church and Christians have done a horrible job of showing empathy, true empathy for same-sex attracted, gender dysphoric, and, and quite frankly, any single person. We've done this in part because we have over-elevated the nuclear family. Over the past 50 years, the church has so emphasized mother, father, and children that it has completely thrown out extended family, communities of friendship. They were actually a part of the biblical narrative. And it's not that mother, father, and children aren't important, but that's not the only way to have relationships of love and of intimacy. And if that's what the church has elevated, which it has, it's saying to some people, you will never get married, and therefore, you don't get to enjoy love because this is the only good one. Every person needs to be loved. They need to know trust and commitment and intimacy. And as a church and as Christians, if you uphold a Christian faithfulness and sexuality, then it's on us to make for a plausible celibacy that people everywhere would have relationships of love and of trust and of intimacy with and without sexuality being expressed physically. This is very, very hard. But it brings up the question of this. How do we decide what's beneficial, best, right, and good? Especially if we really, really want something. What if everyone, everyone, from from leading scientists to top scholars, even down to the Kardashians, thinks something is good for us? What if everyone says, yeah, that's good? What if our deepest longings and our culture affirm us? What if our, our biochemistry and even our genetics point us in a certain direction? But God's word and God's ways say otherwise. What are we going to do? Because this plays not just on our sexuality, but on every aspect of our being and choices in life. What do we do when what we want and what God says contradict? In other words, what are any of us going to do when Jesus 
doesn't make us happy. His promise is to save us and love us, to give us what we need, not necessarily what we want. This is very, very hard. For some, this sounds impossible. And secondly, it's really hard because I think we all need forgiveness and healing. Probably as we've been talking about this, everyone in here, well, 99.5% of you who are honest, are struggling with guilt. Because even talking about it brings up the past, how you've screwed up, how you struggle with addiction, feeling dirty because of what you've done or actually what's been done to you. And if you've only come here today, you probably have this idea that Christians have elevated sex and sexual sin above others. And you know what? That's wrong. Jesus talked a whole lot more about self-righteousness, religious pride, money, and what you do with it, and failure to do justice to the poor and the outcast. Those are sin, too. There is no difference between types of sin. There are implications for some sins greater than others, but all of them separate us from God. And some of you have dealt with the church where it feels like all they're talking about is sexual sin and nothing else, and I am sorry. And if you're a Christian here today, and the whole time I've been talking, you've been thinking about somebody who really needs to hear this message. Don't. Hear what God wants to say to you in this. Don't be self-righteous. Don't think your sin is not as bad as somebody else's. And we as Christians have also hid the gospel to people in need of healing and forgiveness. As if going to church, being morally upright is the way you get to heaven and not Jesus' death on the cross. The gospel is this. We are more sinful than we're willing to admit every single one of us, me and you, but we can be more loved through Jesus Christ than we can dare to imagine. Is there forgiveness, healing, grace? Yes. Yes. And if we're going to be honest, all of us are sexually broken in some way. And even those of you who have avoided that altogether, which I can't imagine, all of us by biblical standards are adulterers. See, the Bible uses adultery as a metaphor for unfaithfulness. And that's actually a great description of sin in general. We often think of sin as doing bad things. That's not how the Bible thinks of sin. The Bible thinks of sin as unfaithfulness to God. It's rejecting God as Lord and Savior and determiner of my life and choosing to be my own Lord and Savior instead. That's what sin is. And in that sense, every one of us is an adulterer. At its root, any sin is a worship question. Who or what is my God? Who or what am I after? Who or what am I listening to? But there is forgiveness. The gospel tells us Jesus gave up his body, his desires, his pleasure on the cross. Not demanding what he wanted, 
or even what he needed. He hung naked and experienced shame. He sacrificed himself so that we might have life to the full. The basic biblical story is you and I are unfaithful to God, but he, Christ, was faithful to the Father for us. And that means if anyone repents, admits their weakness and sin, and puts their trust in Christ crucified, they are forgiven. Anyone in here can be forgiven for anything. Completely, fully, everything. Washed clean. God will not view you on the basis of your sin. He will view you as looking at Jesus, his son. What are we looking for when we turn to sex? G.K. Chesterton famously was attributed as saying, a man knocking at the door of the brothel is looking for God. In Genesis 2.18, the Lord declares, it is not good for the man to be alone. And then it concludes with, and the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. From the beginning, we understand that we are made for relationships. We desire intimacy, depth, trust. But get that, we are made for relationships, not for sex. Think about it. Think about some of your best friends or closest family members. Which of those friendships would be better, would be enhanced and not complicated by adding sex? Sounds weird, but actually think about it. Any friendship you have, relationship with an aunt, a cousin, a brother, a sister, might as well add sex, it makes things better, right? It tells me that we're actually made for relationship, not sex. Our longing is to be naked and unashamed, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. For somebody else to know me, to really know me deep down in and not be bored, not laugh, not reject me. And this tells me that even the best marriage and the best sex are not enough because ultimately what we're longing for is what only God can provide. We need union with him. I'm going to close with an extended quote by Deborah Hirsch in a book, Redeeming Sex. And then we'll pray. She writes this. Properly understood and expressed, our sexuality can be an amazing access point for people to rediscover God. Our per personhood and capacity for relationship are what make us human and also godlike. Contained within these attributes is an inherent yearning for God. Our sexuality is the stuff of passion and of pain. It is what pushes us outside of ourselves into the fearful but wonderful world of relationships. It's the desire within us to know and be known, to love and be loved, the stuff of the heart of intimacy. And even though we only experience it as broken beings, it is still the very thing that points humanity towards its creator. She goes on, it is the brokenness and temporary nature of our sexuality that creates the hunger for the complete and the perfect. And what human being on the planet doesn't experience this? Sexuality and all that goes with it, including both its pleasure and pain, are common to all humanity. 
We all feel its pull. We experience its joys. We suffer its pains. We also know its terrible compulsions. We fear both its capacity for darkness and even its power to liberate. And in its expression, both the good and the bad, we are able to identify with other people. Acknowledging our own broken sexuality enables us to identify with a sexually broken humanity. Our sexuality is indeed a powerful force. It can lead us to something of an experience of either heaven or hell, depending on our ability to orient it toward God or not. Let's pray. God, while I pray for every one of us to hear your word and you and seek you, I pray especially for those who are having the hardest time with a message like this. Extend grace. Forgive me for glossing over deeper pains. Enable all of us to equally come before the cross, not just to experience forgiveness, but to know love, true love, what we're actually made for. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.